Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Sunday. We got to get Dan Weber in here talking about USC Trojan football. We didn't have him on last week. He's kind of busy downtown Los Angeles. There's this whole Todd McNair versus the NCAA huge trial going on, and he's been down there every day along with Keely Yor. So we wanted to talk to him about that. And of course, you know, some extra spring football stuff, the NFL draft stuff. So a lot to get to with Dan Weber. If you have any questions or comments, podcast at uscfootball.com. That's our email. Or you can text us or call us. And the number there is 424-254-9141. So you can send a text. You can call and leave a voicemail. Try to keep it short. Uh, but it's 424-254-9141. We'd love to hear from you. We have a lot of your questions and inquiries and comments and stuff today, so we're going to try to get to all of that right now with Dan Weber. What is up, Dan? How you doing, man? Doing good. Uh, uh, taking a day. Uh, I'll tell you what. What you you forget when you're a sports writer, much of your life, or a sports writer, or whatever, that that's nothing like a regular nine to five uh, Monday to Friday job. And covering this trial now, coming in from Orange County, it's like a, a 6:30 in, uh, in the morning to uh, to beat the rush hour, and uh, so it becomes a uh, an all day thing. And you realize, okay, the weekends really get important. And for us, the weekends are when we do much of our work normally. But the whole world gets flipped around when you're you're working because uh, we work like afternoon evenings is kind of how how the coverage stuff goes and then it's weekends and this trial is completely opposite that. And it takes a, a little doing to get yourself into a, a whole different uh, daily rhythm. Yeah. It's, it just seemed like talking to you and Keely, it was, it was a whole different, <laughs> it was a whole different ball game. And uh, it's just, yeah. And, and there's rules and, and she was trying to be the, or she is the uh, pool reporter for the media, to, to having to film all that kind of stuff. So you're talking about filming hours and hours every day. You guys are right. You're if you got to check out Dan's ghost notes, very very detailed of what's going on in the trial, and then you're writing stories afterwards. It just seemed like it was a whole. This is a whole different beast. Oh yeah, and luckily it's a relatively small courtroom because if it were big, uh, uh, Bruce Brolat is such a great attorney, but he's very soft spoken. And you're behind them, so you don't necessarily hear every single question. So you're trying to scramble. So you're doing the best, you know, in terms of paraphrasing and, and kind of get the gist of and try to be completely fair to the witnesses and both sides, both lawyers and all of that. Uh, so we, we sort of separate it. Then afterwards, we can do a little bit of an opinion take in the instant analysis and a little more of an opinion take in the column. But with the ghost notes, try to just say, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. This is how it's going. And, uh, and kind of let, you know, readers, uh, figure it out for themselves as they go. Almost like maybe you're sitting next to me and hearing the same thing I'm hearing. Yeah. That's uh, I think that's the, the basic response of we've been seeing, um, 
you know, from people on the website that they're really excited to, to, they feel like they're there. And I guess that's, that's a testament to what you're doing. They just feel like they're part of the trial when they're reading what you're saying. That's what I'm trying to do. And again, that was what you try to do with the ghost notes is, you know, you can't go over everything that happens in practice, but you kind of want to make them feel like, uh, you know, for practices that they uh, can't get to see uh, that they're there standing next to you kind of. And so uh, that's, that's kind of the goal. All right. Well, before we jump into, we're going to talk a little bit more about the trial. Wanted to thank our sponsor, Trader Joe's. Uh, you can check them out on Instagram at Trader Joe's. They've been a great partner with us. Uh, Dan and I are both huge fans. One of the things I like to do, actually, if you go to TraderJoe's.com, you can check out their Fearless Flyer. So there's like a monthly flyer with some of the different specials. Three-pack of Belgian chocolate bars, which I, I love those. There's a, We get the dark chocolate a lot. It's pretty cool. One I haven't tried yet, the Japanese-style fried rice. Um, I love fried rice, so I want to check that one out. And this really neat one, uh, it's a butterfly chicken. It's called spatch-cooked chicken. So it's in a package uh, with lemons and, and herbs and uh, lemon-rosemary chicken. And it's like, a, but it's a whole chicken, but it's like flattened out. You could barbecue. So that's definitely, certainly something I want to check out. I love getting the meats, Dan, that are already like marinated. I can just kind of throw them on the grill and they taste really good. It sounds like a good idea. The more you, the more you talk about those, <laughs> uh, the better they sound uh, in terms of, ooh, it's, uh, it's for grilling. That sounds really good. Yeah. My wife gets those Belgium chocolate bars, usually dark chocolate they'll like cook with. But then I start eating them, and then she, <laughs> she gets mad at me, like, you're not supposed to eat those. But I eat And anyways. I think dark chocolate's supposed to be good for you. That's yeah. That's the story I always hear, that that's a really good thing. So uh, you can definitely uh, tell yourself it, it is. Yeah. Uh, probably not when I'm eating, like, you know, half a bars of those things. Those things are huge. They're like a pound. So uh, probably shouldn't be eating as much as I do, but uh, we'll work on that. Um, that's kind of the stuff. I was a high school coach. We used to sell those chocolate bars to raise money for, you know, uniforms or extra stuff or, or whatever. So, uh, I'm, I'm with y'all. That was one of the, the big fundraisers was, uh, so I can't remember the name of the company, but everybody used to sell chocolate bars. Yeah. I, I would always buy them. Um, yeah. well, let's, <laughs> can I have a sweet tooth? So we got to talk about the trial. We got some questions and stuff, but I thought it'd be better to kind of give you, you know, a chance to give an overview of, of what's happened so far and what you're, your overall thoughts are, you know, how this has been going for the McNair side and, and the NCAA side. Well, I think it's interesting that uh, uh, Bruce Broilette is as advertised. I think we all knew that, but, you know, you get to see it in person. He is, uh, you know, there's this Notre Dame, you know, alum, undergrad, Texas grad, uh, law school grad, you know, scholarships to both places. As I said, I kidded him about, He's going to be sitting on the wrong side in two games this year, uh, this fall. Uh, but uh, he is so good at what he does. And I know there's been some talk about on the on the P about his you know his questions are compound and they they uh, you know they're fairly you know elaborate questions and they're not that 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 that. And I think what people don't understand is he's telling a story. He's weaving a tale. He's not trying to get like 27 different answers that are going to impeach the NCA, but he basically is building to just one answer, maybe that very often is right at the end of the day where he, he gets the NCA people to say, Oh no, when we change the year 
the, call, the, the, the famous phone call was made and we changed who made the call without telling anybody. That was not factually, that was not because it was factually inaccurate. That was just paraphrasing. You know, when they just changed the two major facts of the call, they said, oh, that's paraphrasing, which gets you, you know, that's the, the, I think that's the way Bruce is trying to portray the NCAA in this case is they did things like that all the way through to USC in order to be able to give the maximum penalties, which were just kind of ridiculous when you look back at everything else that the NCAA has ever done. And um, he's just weaving a tail and getting them to kind of admit that, uh, you know, like with uh, uh, the law professor Rodney Uphoff, who justified his, even though he was just an observer and a non-voter and uh, by bylaws, a non-participant, he participated like crazy. And the emails prove that. And his justification was he read all the information. He knew everything. He was the go-to guy because the case, if it got appealed, he would have to know every single fact. So he became really the resource person. And in telling you this story, he tells you that half of the eight-person COI Committee on Infractions were basically newcomers. And they didn't understand how things work. So he had to intervene, which is fine. But then they said, well, can you tell us when the decision was made? Because it looks like the case was heard in the end of February. Uh, you went a week then, couldn't get an, uh, an, a, a verdict on Todd McNair. You went all of uh, uh, March, all of April. And could you get it done in May? He wasn't sure. This, uh, the decision came out on June, June 10th. So here's the guy who was kind of the all-purpose resource who'd spent 50 to 100 hours reading everything in the 2,700 pages in the file, couldn't tell you when they finally decided or why or how it got turned around after three months when they couldn't decide. He also didn't know, for example, when he was discussing the penalties, how many scholarships a Division One team has? He thought it was 90. Uh, he just threw that Oops. out. And <laughs> Bruce said, what? I mean, he wasn't even going there. Um, but uh, so I think he's trying to say, who are you going to believe? Um, you know, these guys who look like they had a reason to kind of change the facts. And then the final point, I think, is, they're trying to say, yes, maybe the penalties were way different before we convicted Todd McNair. But the conviction of Todd McNair, finding Todd guilty, he had nothing to do with the final penalties. Well, that's just basically I think people were looking at that and said, wait, these were the penalties before the last thing you did was say Todd McNair was guilty. And then these are the penalties afterward. And you say, Ty McNair has nothing to do with uh, your decision. It, it's really a hard sell. And, and when you see what the NCAA lawyers are doing, they're basically relitigating the case. They're going over, you know, the, the way the case was decided. And they're trying to say things like, you know, the phone call, it was just, you know, it was one piece. And yeah, it was important. But, and yeah, there was, there was a reason why we believed, uh, you know, Lloyd Lake, multiple felon, gangbanger, 
between prison sentences in virtually every instance where they had a choice. Who, was, who do you believe, uh, Lloyd Lake or Todd McNair? They believed Lloyd Lake. And it, it strains uh, credulity to, to think that, that you would believe Lloyd Lake, who was suing Reggie Bush and trying to put pressure on Reggie Bush to get, you know, the money he said was due him. Uh, and so he almost hit a reason. With Todd, you know, the one phone call who everybody, you know, even the, you can get the NCA to admit it, was the, the one phone call in the middle of the night for two and a half minutes where the whole plot was revealed. And they're absolutely sure they know what happened in that phone call, although it wasn't recorded as uh, Lloyd Lake had been recording calls that month to Reggie Bush and Reggie's dad to kind of prove his case. He didn't record that one. NCA seemed to have no interest in why he didn't record that. Uh, you know, and there are going to be other questions that are going to come up about all the things that the NCA did, but their lawyers basically have to say, we went by the book and this was our best guess and maybe we screwed up some and yeah, but come on, uh, he could have gotten another job. Other coaches have, and they show you pictures of Bruce Pearl, who's been, you know, God knows how many years of show cause he's had a couple of times in his career. Now he's a head basketball coach at Auburn. Or uh, uh, Calvin Sampson, who's the head basketball coach at Houston after his time at Indiana and Oklahoma. And they're saying, well, these other guys are way worse than you are. And they got jobs. So not our fault. You know, well, I'm not sure that's going to fly. But that's kind of where we are right now uh, as, uh, with the NCAA. Uh, I think tomorrow they're going to put on Roscoe Howard, who is a, you know, hang him high, uh, former federal prosecutor, uh, who, who was also a non-voting observer who sent around this just absolutely incendiary email about how, you know, guilty Todd was and how guilty USC was and how much he was afraid now, this is somebody that's not supposed to be participating in the deliberations. And he sends it around to the entire committee. And he was the one that wanted to bring in, as he called it, dogfighting, when that was never even an issue. You know, at the worst, it was, uh, uh, you know, dog neglect. And they had decided that won't be any part of it. He thought that should be part of it. He thought the tapes uh, that Lloyd Lake made were, should be part of it, even though, uh, the NCA got a, a legal ruling that they thought that was against California law to uh, to tape uh, a one-sided you know tape recording, and that they couldn't consider him. He wanted it considered. He was just uh, so his uh, deposition tomorrow. He'll be a video deposition. I think his, that should be pretty interesting. Um, we keep hearing that you know that stay tuned uh, for some of the they they dropped one little tidbit the other day about Josephine Petuto, who's also going to be on uh, a video deposition. And the one little nugget they said was, should she have been on the committee knowing that two years earlier, when Lloyd Lake was interviewed on Real Sports and talked about some of the stuff that he had done, she said, I believe Lloyd Lake. Now, she's that's two years before the USC uh, you know, hearing and deliberations and all that. She's already said she believes Lloyd Lake. Uh, so, and 
the other little tidbit about Josephine Petuto that we picked up yesterday or Saturday, Friday was that uh, she may have listened to the tapes. And what does that do if the tapes were illegal to be made in, you know, in California? I don't think we, we didn't get an answer to that. We just got a little drop of information from a question that that may be the case. So we're kind of waiting to see we get caught up with uh, Roscoe Howard and, uh, and Josephine Petuto uh, this week. And I, also there's a, a lawyer from Los Angeles who was on the committee as a public member by the name of Brian Halloran. And he's sort of a kind of a mystery figure. He doesn't have a, a big, you know, public profile that you can figure out. What was he doing on the committee? How did, how did he get on the committee? What was, you know, and he's, he's an LA guy, but what did, what were his feelings about USC? He's going to be uh, uh, on the stand in person. So looking forward to him as well. So oh. that's kind of where we are right now. All right. Um, well, we got some questions on the trial, so we'll go through these. Then we'll jump into some draft stuff. Tarek says, oh, I'm sorry. This was, <laughs> that was a wrong, uh, that was the wrong question. Sorry. Stephen Poway uh in all of the discussions about the Todd McNair case, I keep coming back to one question. Where in the world is USC? Why didn't they also sue the NCAA, especially knowing what we do now, namely that USC's original sanctions were actually going to be very reasonable until the NCAA Committee on Infractions went entirely off the reservation? Stephen Poway. Steve, I'm not a lawyer, but I think it would have been harder for USC to do it as a member of a voluntary association of universities that were that agreed to be governed by the NCAA organization. So I think Todd McNair had more straightforward defamation. He did not agree necessarily to let the NCAA do whatever they wanted to do to him. So I think he had a more direct route. You know, I would have liked to have seen them in 2012, seen USC once, uh, Judge Schaller said, uh, there's evidence in the limited discovery that we have of uh, malicious uh, you know, intent and, and defamation and uh, a serious uh, chance that Todd McNair will prevail. Once that happened, I would have liked to have seen USC on a limited basis say, we want to see all the information that you have. All, now, all the material that's in the, in the trial now I think USC should have demanded as a member of the organization that was guaranteed fair process by the organization. I would have loved to have seen USC, uh, and maybe they'd had to threaten to to sue. Whether they would have actually sued or not, I I don't know that I'd ever make that call in advance. I wish they would have threatened that they will take it as far as it has to go to get all the information that Todd McNair's attorneys now have on the NCAA. And once they had that, I think USC could have absolutely negotiated from a, uh, you know, a position of strength. I think Pat Hayden went to the uh, Indianapolis a couple of times, but I think because they'd always said, we're not going after the NCAA, we're not going to push them if push comes to shove. I think the NCAA knew that they could you know, say, well, maybe we'll settle. We'll think, you know, we'll think about it. And then their, you know, attorneys in the McNair case would always say, no, 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 don't give in. And USC had nowhere to go uh, from that point on. I think they got bad legal advice 
when it, they were told, they say they were told they couldn't sue. I don't think that's true. I think there were some other personal situations involved uh, that impacted USC suing, and um, we'll leave it at that. I just think, you know, if they had to look back at it now, I don't know if they'd say, you know, maybe we should have. Uh, but uh, I would not have wanted them to get into the middle of the case and start suing to get scholarships back and all that, because the NCAA could have used that against USC. And people could have said, you don't want to go to USC. They're not penalized right now. But when this lawsuit's over, they're going to get killed. And if the NCAA could have strung it out and all that, that would have left that hanging over USC's head. At least that's not the case. They're past it. They don't have to, you know, they suffered all the consequences. Uh, so they, they don't have that held over the head, which I think the NCAA absolutely would have. But, uh, but yeah, it's uh, one of those uh, looking back and saying, man, what if? Yeah. Uh, let's see. John in Oakland said, I'm really appreciating Dan and Keeley's coverage of the McNair trial. One question for them. Is Lloyd Lake going to testify for either side? If not, why? Is he still alive? It seems that the infamous two and a half minute call he made was crucial in the NCAA's reasoning for finding McNair guilty. It would seem that the sides would want to discuss this call with him and what he claims to have said during it as part of their case or defense. Thanks and fight on John in Oakland. Yeah, John, I think, you know, you make a really good point. I don't think he can be forced to testify uh, unless both sides want him. Uh, it's a really hard thing to do. Uh, I think I would be interested. I mean, the most interesting thing would be, this is my dream scenario, that they call Lloyd Lake and get him on the stand. And he says, because I think, if you read his testimony carefully, I think he was trying not to implicate Todd McNair. I think he thought he didn't implicate. He was interested in Reggie. He wasn't interested in Todd McNair. I think he liked, from whatever he knew of Todd McNair, he liked Todd McNair. Okay. I think he didn't think he implicated Todd McNair at all. I don't think what he understood was, that whatever he said, the NCA was probably going to turn it into uh, something that they could say Todd McNair lied. I mean, they flipped every, everything they got, they flipped it around. So I don't think he understood that. If he were on the stand, I'd almost be willing to bet that he would say uh, whatever he would say would be favorable to Todd McNair. Uh, that would be my sense of it. The dream scenario I have there would be the NCAA then having to get up and the NCAA attorney having to say, how could you believe this multiple felon, you know, gangbanger? Who would ever believe this guy? Uh, that would be my dream. Uh, that the <laughs> NCAA would have to impeach Lloyd Lake. And, you know, it might work out that way. I mean, in life, we don't always get everything we want. And I think getting Lloyd Lake on the stand is one of those things we're not going to get. And uh, I don't know that I don't know that anybody is necessarily going to say they totally believe Lloyd Lake unless he had, you know, unless he had proof that the photo was manipulated or something like that. Uh, I, I just think, you know, it's something to think about, but I, it is not going to happen, apparently. All right. Uh, we got Stephen in Culver City. 
I'm sure you are. We'll get many questions about this. But my question is, now that it looks like uh, Bruce Burlett and Todd McNair are building a strong case around the NCAA Infractions Committee, unfairly treating USC and the sanctions that were issued, what does it mean for USC today? Will it be a moral victory or will USC get more out of this? So this is more of can something still happen, even though USC didn't do anything back in the day? I would, they'd have to be much more aggressive than we have seen USC willing to be. And because many of the same legal minds that were at USC back in the day, uh, I mean, USC actually brought in some good outside attorneys and they defended the original case really well. What the NCA did to USC at that point was they said, how dare you defend yourself? You're guilty. Admit it. You're supposed to cooperate with us. And USC would say, well, you got the year of the phone call wrong. You got who made the phone call wrong. You got this wrong. You got that wrong. The NCA took that personally. It was like, wait a minute. You guys aren't being cooperative. It's so I think that lesson to USC was, holy criminy, even when we're right, we're going to be in trouble the way the NCAA is interpreting this. And uh, so they, you know, they pretty much, you know, backed off, hands off. They were in the middle of the $6 billion or just getting going with the $6 billion fundraising campaign. Now they're all through that successfully and adding on, you know, to the second phase of it. Uh, I wish they would really get together at USC and figure out what can they get the NCA to do for them? I mean, it's that there's no one at the NCA who has looked at this case and has the integrity to, and the honesty to say what they did was, was just outrageous. I mean, what they did is a hundred times worse than anything in terms of unethical conduct than anything Todd McNair did. And that there's nobody at the NCA that can come out and say that and apologize. Uh, it embarrasses you that these are the kinds of people that are running uh, our, you know, higher education, uh, you know, our institutions of higher education. These are the kind of people that are populating uh, our law school faculties. <clears throat> it's pretty sad, uh, but you wish somebody at the NCA would have a, you know, have a, a an ounce of uh, of integrity, but from what we've seen, such a person does not exist, and it's really it's really sad, really a shame. All right, we got one last one on the trial, then we'll move on to the draft. Uh, Tom in the South Bay, there are a lot of questions in your article. Just asking. Do you really think that the NCAA will answer these questions? Also, can USC take advantage of the outcome of this trial? Since there were too many mistakes made and a lot of sleazy, unprofessional work done by the NCAA to bring back what was taken away and bring back Reggie Bush. Uh, great job covering the trial. Keep up the good work. Fight on, Tom, in the South Bay. Yeah, Tom. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's up to Bruce and, and, and Todd and you know uh, the other attorneys to decide how many of those questions they can ask. They've asked some and you know haven't really gotten an answer. Uh, I just think you know, you, you want to keep asking those questions and looking at the jury and saying, why aren't we getting answers to those questions? Uh, what was going on here? You know, why do they not know when they made the final decision or how it was made or who wrote it? Who, you know, who wrote the key 
sentence in the whole decision, they changed the facts. And they can't tell you who did that. They cannot tell you who wrote that sentence. I mean, come on. That, you, can't, you, know, you can't do that and expect people to believe you. So I hope, you know, let's hope they keep asking. If they don't get the answers, you hope the jurors say, okay, well, now I understand what that means. Uh, as far as uh, using this to bring back, yeah, I think uh, a good point would be, uh, I think Reggie would have to apologize in a, in a way that we haven't ever seen him do. But I, I think that would be one of the things that USC really should should push for is it's ridiculous that he's been disassociated. I mean, he did less. I mean, again, we, we talked about some Division One basketball coaches, famous Division One basketball coaches, a famous president of a university in Ohio who did more than Reggie did, and they're fine. They're back. They're, everybody's happy. You know, everything's going great. And Reggie's supposed to be disassociated for life. That's, it's ridiculous. The penalties were, were absolute. And, and, and who knows? Maybe if they said, you know, we apologize and some of this was da-da-da-da-da, would that cause the Heisman Trophy people to, to say, okay, you know, we can reinstate that. I mean, Reggie's unfortunately responsible for some of that. He had some opportunities to head some of this off, and he didn't, and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't listen. And, uh, you know, it came back to bite him and you wish, you know, he would have listened to, to some people, uh, you know, at the time and you wish he would just come out and say, look, I should have waited or I, you know, there were, there, there were probably some extenuating circumstances, family circumstances that Reggie probably never wanted to go public with that, that got him involved in this. Um, and I can understand that. So so I, you know, how this all plays out. Uh, you would like the USC to develop some sort of strategy for how this could play out uh, for their benefit. Uh, I mean, the NCAA owes USC. I don't think there's any question. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, but got to you know see how the trial ends and everything. But it looks looking good for the McNair side at least so far. Um, all right. Well, let's talk about the NFL draft a little bit, Dan. Uh, we had a couple of questions, but I'll give a recap. So it was held Thursday through Saturday of last week. Sam Darnold, a little bit of a surprise, not the first overall pick. He goes third to the New York Jets, who traded up. So Sam Darnold is going to New York. Uh, no other USC players taken on that Thursday. Then on Friday, got to see three players selected. Ronald Jones was the first. Early in the second round, uh, sixth pick of the second round, he goes to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, Uchenna Nwusu, the outside linebacker, he goes locally to the Los Angeles Chargers, the 16th pick in the second round. So uh, good luck to Uchenna Nwusu, who's from Carson, California, will be playing in Carson, California, which is very cool. And then uh, Rasheem Green in the third round, 15th pick. Pete Carroll selected uh, Rasheem. He's growing to Seattle. So, And then no one selected on day three of the draft, rounds four through seven. So that's it for USC. Four players picked, you know, all fairly high, all, you know, in the first two days. Thought maybe a player or two might go on Saturday, but that did not happen. So maybe get your thoughts, Dan, and then we'll answer a couple of the questions. Yeah, I mean, I think Sam really wanted to go to Cleveland, and I think he was very receptive about Cleveland in a way that a lot of players aren't. I think Cleveland really, as I said, Cleveland going to Cleveland, and they did it again. Uh, 
you know, they uh, came up with some, uh, you know, after having the owner and, uh, you know, six or seven, you know, Hugh Jackson, the head coach and all these personnel people <clears throat> going out and working out all the guys, um, they came up with Baker Mayfield and you just think, wow, the last, uh, a uh, big 12 quarterback from the state of Texas who was six feet tall or shorter wasn't enough for him. So they said, well, we didn't get Johnny Manziel right, but I'm sure we're going to get Baker Mayfield right. And the problem is I really like Baker Mayfield as a college quarterback, not so much for all the other stuff, but, uh, but he's playing in the big 12. And I don't know if you may have mentioned this. He was the lone player in the big 12 drafted in the first round so if you're playing a big 12 schedule you're really not playing against many people that can defend you especially many people who can a uh, defend the pass in the secondary or b get to the quarterback so i'd have a tough time you know going with a six-foot quarterback who doesn't have great speed even though he's you know pretty elusive and pretty quick uh as my guy who's going to save the, save the day in, uh, in, um, in uh, Cleveland, which dropped Sam to, uh, to the New York Jets, which I think was better than the Giants because I didn't want him there necessarily with Eli Manning, who doesn't want to leave. So I think it was better for Sam going to the, the next place. The only uh-oh you got with the Jets is, and your quarterback coach and your offensive coordinator is Jeremy Bates. And you think, uh-oh. And I'm sure he's not the same Jeremy Bates that he was when he was at USC. But um, that uh, that might be an uh-oh moment for Sam. But uh, he's there. Leonard Williams can protect him and, and get, him, uh, get him through things uh, uh, at the Jets. Uh, they're not maybe as much pressure uh, as the other team in New York. And if you're really good, they're going to like you anyway. Uh, I think he's going to, you know, win people over. He's already won people over with, uh, I mean, they wanted him all along. I mean, they were the, you know, the people that, you know, the fans who started the suck for Darnold uh, campaign a year ago and had, uh, you know, Jets uh, jerseys with Darnold's name on it. So, so I think that, that works out pretty well in a lot of ways. I think the draft went kind of the way you thought it would go. I thought that was a compliment to uh, Ronald Jones to, to go six in the second round. I thought that was, you know, for running backs, you know, you get in the top, uh, you know, he was 38. Uh, that's really good. I thought that Chargers were very smart in, in going for Chenna. I thought Chenna is right where he belonged, and, uh, and that's terrific. And then, uh, and then Rasheem, I thought, was everybody pretty much uh, lined up where they should have lined up and should have finished. I, I thought that – the draft was fair. Obviously, Deontay, you know, Burnett getting passed over is the one guy, you know, the bad break on the, you know, the hamstring and the not being able to run at the, you know, the combine and not really being able to all the way, you know, run. Um, and, and that was always going to be the question mark about, you know, Deontay. I mean, here's a kid that, you know, he holds the record for the uh, Rose Bowl pass receiving. He holds the record for the Cotton Bowl pass receiving. So, you know, he got some. Uh, he got some awfully strong uh, things going, you know, going for him. But but they go, you know, an awful lot by uh, you know the height, weight, and and speed, and all that. And um, uh, and then you kind of, I know people were saying, gee, maybe uh, maybe the Jets will sign him and he can go there, you know, package with Sam. But 
going to the Titans, I guess. So uh, we shall we shall see how that works out. But you wish uh, he was the one I thought had the best shot. Obviously, I think we all did. Uh, that somebody would have just said, you know, I watched his film in the uh, the Rose Bowl. I watched his film in the Cotton Bowl. This kid can really play. Uh, but uh, you know, that's not the NFL way. Uh, sometimes they just, you know. So we'll we'll see. You can certainly make it as a free agent, and I think he's he's obviously got a chance uh, to do that. And I don't know. He's a, one of those questions where you second guess yourself because I'm not so sure he would have been in a better position coming out after his senior year either. Uh, I don't know that it would have impacted his, uh, his draft status one way or the other necessarily. Uh, I, I don't know that you can second guess at that, at that point and say, Oh, he should have come back. Uh, I just, I don't, don't think we can, you know, you can say that it's a tough break. You know, here's Juju the year before gets picked in the second round and he just, you know, blows up at Pittsburgh and Deontay with what he'd done, you thought, well, he, he would certainly have a chance to, to, to be that kind of a player, but um, it just doesn't work out all the time. And, and that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Were there any thoughts about uh, that, that fourth, I mean, that third day rounds fourth or seven that you might see, Someone maybe you don't expect like Viani or Nico Fala or Chris Hawkins or anything like any any of the other guys besides Deontay Burnett, uh, Josh Fatu. I don't know any of those guys. I don't. I think I think those get down to the when they start looking at numbers. And uh, you know, I mean, I was amazed the Bengals took the Phillips kid, the defensive back from Western Michigan, who had a hundred yard touchdown against USC. He had the most touchdowns in. Uh, interception returns and punt returns and fumble returns of anybody like ever practically. And he had 11 and he was, I mean, I, I was really impressed with that kid and the Bengals got second guess for drafting him. They didn't have a sixth round pick. So they drafted him in the fifth round and everybody's saying, Whoa, he's not that he's not, you know, maybe he really not a, a, that high a pick. And I'm thinking, God, he looked awful good against USC. And they were, you know, scared to death every time he touched the ball. And yet uh, they're pretty, they said, well, he didn't test that well at the combine and his numbers weren't, you know, super. They were just okay. And yet you watched him run by everybody on USC's team like they were, you know, standing still. And you knew he'd done that to Michigan State. He'd done that a lot. And yet uh he just he didn't get that much uh, you know attention either. It's a it's a tough business. Uh, so I didn't think any of those necessarily jumped out enough. Where you know maybe Bianca had he uh, had he you know gotten down to that weight before the season and not gotten hurt. I don't know. I don't know where that would have left Bianca. I think that he might have been the one that that could have separated himself. Uh, you know at that point. And I know they look at uh, Joshua too. And and I think a lot of people think, well, he'll probably make a roster, but uh, but they weren't going to use a draft choice, uh, you know, on him. And I think the same with all those guys. They're they're you know thinking they got a chance. I think they all have a chance. I and mean, it really depends. Uh, USC's had a decent number of free agents who've uh, made rosters and and stayed, you know, for for years, but. Uh, but I'm not totally uh, totally surprised. I think the first, uh, 
you know, the first guys all went kind of where you thought they would go. And the last guys, you know, it's just a, kind of a crapshoot. Yeah. Um, well, along those lines, Tark wants to know, should Burnett have stayed another year? I don't know that that necessarily with uh, when you look at the kind of the makeup of this team with uh, the quarterback situation, I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> and you've got, you know, uh, you've got Tyler Vons and, and, and Michael Pittman are certainly going to be, uh, you know, in the mix for lead, lead guy. And, you know, Deontay had that special, you know, thing going with, with Sam. And I don't know, I mean, how much more good film can he have than the Rose Bowl and the Cotton Bowl, you know? I mean, go through a whole whole other year, um, and probably his speed is not going to get, his speed's going to stay what it, what it is. I mean, you know, everybody forgets Jerry Rice was probably that same speed. Uh, you know, it's not all about speed, but, uh, but the way things are today, uh, I don't know he would have helped himself necessarily, uh, you know, by coming back. Now, if you come back and your team wins a national championship, that's the, that's the one thing that makes a difference. And then you, you can kind of, everybody can justify, uh, you know, going with you. But short of that, I'm not sure that there was anything he could do on a team that's probably not going to complete as many passes this year as they did last year. And then we had Stephen Poway. He said, did Alabama really just have 12 guys drafted to NFL teams with four first-round picks? How long do you think it will be before USC has that kind of depth and quality? Yeah, I don't know. And I don't know how long Alabama can you know keep doing it. I mean, basically, the difference now with Alabama is they are a Southeastern Conference all-star team. I mean, they're recruiting kids out of, you know, uh, uh, Nashville and uh, uh, Baton Rouge and uh, you know Mississippi kids and Florida kids and you know they're a Georgia kid. They're getting kids out of everywhere. They're getting you know if Kentucky has a Mister Football, they do. Have, he's a running back. Uh, a couple of years ago, he's at Alabama. Uh, it's uh, you know it's a phenomenon the way they are doing what they're doing and and you know it. it it keeps itself going as it did for USC those years when USC would have, you know, double digits or eight, nine, ten guys year after year. And USC still has the most, you know, NFL uh, draft picks and the most first round <coughs> picks. Uh, but um, and so that really that does help you. And I think they'll they're going to move it on up. But I think they they have to. Um, I think in, in terms of the development, in terms of the ability to run, and in terms of the ability to uh, to have really good good weight, good strength, um, I, I think that may need to you know pick up a, a, a just a little bit. I mean, it is a little discouraging when you see Viani get to the right weight after he's finished his playing days at USC. You know, I mean, I I would have liked to have seen him at the right weight. Uh, before his senior season at the very latest and not after when he gets hurt and he's trying to get ready for the NFL. So, uh, you know, whatever needs to happen there for USC, I think that has to happen uh, as well as, 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 as just more success. For example, if this USC team would have been 
really, you know, if they wouldn't have blown the Washington State game, and if they'd have really been competitive against uh, uh, Notre Dame, and let's face it, they, you know, they outgained Ohio State 400 and whatever, three yards to 277, and if they don't blow up, you know, all the things that they blew up in terms of turnovers and, uh, and sacks, uh, then you people look and say, way, you know, maybe they give you, you know, give a shot to, uh, to Deontay and, and Chris Hawkins and, and, and Joshua too, and, and Vianney and, and guys like that. But when they didn't look very competitive in a couple of those games against, you know, real talent, that probably doesn't help USC. I just don't think you can have games like that. Uh, and, um, and not, you know, you, you create kind of a negative, you know, vibe about the program. And I think you got to, you know, you got to get away from that. And uh, they should not have any of those games. I think that's, that's got to happen. But, uh, you know, the Pac-12 has got to prove itself too. I mean, it, the Pac-12 you know, scrambling. It's not, not where the Big 12 is, but it's, um, uh, I think they got to, you know, get back this year. I mean, the bowl. The bowl season for the Pac-12, how bad did that make the league look? Uh, you know, I can make fun of uh, the Big 12 and Baker Mayfield not playing against many guys that can play defense, but I think they can make that case for the Pac-12 all the way through last year, and it's hard to, hard to disagree with them. So uh, so I think it'll be a while. Uh, now, Nick Saban's not going to be at Alabama forever <laughs> either. So yeah. uh, now, you know, now Dabo Swinney goes there. Uh Watch out uh, if he goes back back to his alma mater. But uh, but other than that, uh, yeah, I don't know how much longer Alabama can keep putting together a southeastern conference area all star team. But that's what they are right now with with you know California guys and New Jersey guys and and whatever. I mean they they have it going in ways in which uh, you know maybe USC almost had it going. Uh, you know, a decade and a half ago. I saw a stat on Twitter, and I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was something along the lines of, for starters that were starting for more than a year at Alabama, there was like a a 60% chance that they were going to be drafted. So, like, basically, if you started for Al- for Nick Saban for more than a year, more than half the time you're getting drafted. And so it was the highest in the nation – and there was a couple other ones. I think Georgia might have been up, but Florida was up there. So Alabama, you're always going to the, you're always in the playoff. That makes sense for a team like Florida that was losing a whole bunch of games. That means you're putting a whole bunch of dudes. Most of your starters are going into the NFL or getting drafted, and you're still not winning. So Saban's got it you know working. With, is, you know. know who else is doing that a little bit is is UCLA. They got guys that keep getting drafted and drafted, and you know fairly high drafts and haven't had much to show for it. Uh, Yeah. I I mean, I think, yeah, Florida and UCLA would be kind of two of a kind, I think, you know, on either, either coast. uh, And they've had some, you know, coaching issues, obviously. Uh, But um, yeah, that's a good, Florida's a good one. Yeah. Well, let's, okay. So we have some other questions too. We'll do a few of these and I'll save some of these for, for next week. We'll likely have to have Dan on again on the weekend because, you know, He's got the trial going on. Yeah. But uh, so we're, I'm sorry we're not going to get to all the Dan questions if you send them in. We'll get to some, and then we'll get to some more uh, in the future. Uh, this is from David in Agora Hills. 
He said JT Daniels will enroll for summer classes starting June 8th instead of in the fall and can participate in the uh, player-run practices. USC fall practice don't start until August 4th. Is this just a coincidence with the the later date for fall camp, or does it buy JT more time to get acclimated? Uh, Fight on, David and Agora Hills. See, I don't know. If they'd have started at the end of July like they did last year, he'd have another week to get acclimated. So – uh, I would think the approach to summer practice this year will be different. Uh, the fact that, you know, Clay Helton was very specific about the 13 player run practices that were going to occur uh, in the summer and all of that. I think they're very, uh, you know, very aware of where they need him to be uh, to hit the ground running in August. But he does have just the four weeks basically and that was an NCAA thing. Uh, there was the way they, uh, you know, uh, figured out whether when you could start uh, practice involved uh, when your first game was and when your classes started and all that. And most teams figured out how to get their practices all the way into July last year, which is why you know a couple of teams were having trouble getting to Pac-12 Media Day because they'd already started practicing. Well, the NCAA said, okay, no more of that. You're not going to be practicing in July. Uh, so, uh, so they basically shortened it pretty much by a week for everybody. Uh, but, um, but I don't know that that necessarily helps JT Daniels, but, uh, 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 that's a good, that's a good question. I, I don't know if he'd have been better off having that extra week and, and kind of five weeks to get ready, uh, instead of four, but, uh, and how USC plays the uh, opening week with UNLV. Uh, my take is they do not need two mock game weeks and then a UNLV game week. They do not. That's my message. Hopefully someone's listening. <laughs> I would like to see them do three weeks of real, intense, physical, fundamental football. Get ready for the season. Then a week if you want, you know, mock game week and then, uh, and then the, uh, the real game week. But I don't think they need to shorten practice to two weeks of physical fundamental uh, getting ready for the season and then two mock game weeks. This team has a tendency to put on the brakes in terms of the physicality, in terms of uh, full pads and all that when they start doing preparation uh, and, I'd like them to get three full weeks uh, of physical, fundamental football, especially if you've got a quarterback, a new quarterback who might be in the mix. Well, we, that's kind of uh, along the lines of what Tark sent in. He sent in a few questions. The first one was, you often mentioned you want practices to be physical, but in the same breath say, but don't tackle to the ground. Alabama, Georgia, Stanford, Ohio State all tackle to the ground. Why not do what works rather than trying to be the exception to the rule? I'll say this, uh, watching this defense this spring, uh, they didn't tackle to the ground, and I don't have any sense that they're not going to be able to take people to the ground. Uh, that they're, not, they're working on all the fundamentals, all the angles and the body control and the control of the eyes and all of those kinds of things, and they have good enough athletes that they should be able to run through people and take them to the ground. So I'm not I'm not convinced that uh, 
that anybody is doing a lot of taking people to the ground. I think they obviously, those teams take people to the ground more than USC does. You know, I won't dispute that at all. Uh, but uh, and, and I, I wouldn't have a problem with doing that just because it sets a tone. Uh, and they certainly, I think, have the depth to do that uh, at this point in time. So, I mean, if I were, you know, involved in making this decision, I would just do it just to set the tone and, and emphasize to these, this team how physicality is really going to be important and how they've got to be tougher than the people they play. Now, you don't have to do it very long. I mean, you know, the, the secret with, with Pete Carroll's teams, they were like maybe 10 minutes of ones against ones, but they competed really hard for those 10 minutes. And it was bang, bang. And, you know, it was absolutely to the point where they would tell you everybody you talked to said that uh, games were less challenging. Games were less intense. And it wasn't that they were going out there for an hour and, and beating heads. They were just doing it. Uh, they, they just had a real sense of, of how much you had to do it. That's I, I would like to see more of that. But uh, but but I don't know that the taking them to the ground is is as important this year with this team and these athletes, uh, the way they're, they seem to really understand what they're doing. Uh, I don't think it's as important. And, and mostly the taking to the ground is for the benefit of the defense. Uh, so so uh, that was not worry, worrying me so much. Now that, you know, if you, if you think that because you're not doing that, you can't quite get to game speed and game tempo, then, then probably you do more of that. Uh, uh, but it looked like they went after each other pretty well in terms of game speed and game tempo when they did go after each other. They just had to do it more. He also wanted to know, for what you saw in spring practice, are you optimistic that the red zone play calling will be better than last year? Yeah, they, 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 yes, they know they've got more ability to bring in an extra tight end and bring in a, a second back. And they just, they know what they did last year and they were all over the place and didn't have any real sense of, you know, I think they were hoping that Ronald would break it wherever he was and they'd get him a, a seam, but uh, they didn't really attack people. It looks like they want, they know they have to attack more at the goal line. I think they know the quarterback has to be, and they did it occasionally with Sam as a running threat. Uh I think, you know, I think they go into this knowing that the quarterback has to be a has to be a threat to carry the ball. Uh, but it was so obvious how bad they were last year that uh, that I think that's the, almost the first thought of this offense is how do we get this right? And uh, having Drevno, you know, Drevno in with his run game specialist sort of status and the fact that he was an offensive line coach. I don't think they're going to get outnumbered at the point of attack nearly as much as they did uh, last year because those plays were just not uh, conceptually sound. I mean, they were running plays where, you know, the defense had more guys at the point of attack than the offense did. That's just, you know, that ain't going to work as it didn't. Uh, so, so, yeah, I am optimistic, yes. And we have one last one from Tarek. Do you see a three-man rotation at safety with Marvell Tell, Akili Ross, and Bubba Bolden. 
Well, you don't have uh, Talanoa Hafanga in there, and I, I, I think he's going to be in the rotation somewhere. He's going to be on the field somewhere, I would think. Um, so uh, so I, I might expand your uh, your three-man rotation, but that's, uh, that's four really good athletes. I mean, really good. I mean, you're 6'2", 6'2", 6'3", 6'4". And they all can hit you. They all will hit you. That's uh, that's as impressive a group of safeties as as we've seen in a long, long, long time. Um, so, but I'd put I'd put uh, Talano in there uh, as well. I would too. Um, Stephen Poway. I didn't hear much talk about special teams this spring with an exclamation point. So he's excited about that. How much time did the team spend on that one third, quote unquote, one third of the game? Have they made changes on who will be handling punts and kickoff returns? Thanks for all you do, Steve and Poway. Steve, I, I think you don't really do as much. I mean, there were springs that we've gone through where they didn't know special teams work at all. Uh, so, <clears throat> and, and, you know, they obviously let them kick and they let them, uh, you know, punt and, and kick. But that's really not something that you – and it's probably a smart thing. You don't want to spend a lot of team time um, on special teams. Uh, there, so there wasn't as much, you know, uh, guys stand, uh, offensive, defensive guys stand on the sidelines with the special teams ran up and down. Um, they did some, you know, some work on uh, on on catching punts uh, and kickoffs with, uh, you know, some of the same guys uh, that you've seen and, uh, you know, Vilas Jones and, uh, uh, Jenny Harris looks more confident and more sure of himself catching punts. Um, Vilas looks like his hands are a lot better, uh, and maybe wouldn't just necessarily be limited to kickoff returns. Um, but, uh, but I know you gotta be thinking, uh, well, I think Greg Johnson, we don't know. He didn't, he wasn't allowed to completely, uh, uh, cleared because of his shoulder. I think he has to be in the mix, and I think Amon Ra St. Brown obviously has to be in the mix with his uh, hands, his confidence, his suddenness, and all of the things that he showed in high school. Uh, that's, that's kind of a position you don't teach. You either can do it or you can't do it. And, you know, when a Dory walked on the field, he could do it. And so I don't know that a freshman is necessarily – not you know not a, a consider a strong consideration just because he's a freshman so so i think you know if, if it's me you you gotta have amon ra up high uh certainly on, on punt return and uh you know tyler vaughn's just because he's got this sort of knack of well you're gonna catch it and he's just got this loosey-goosey way of uh, of getting some yards uh i think he'll also be in the mix uh as far as the punter kicker, I don't think that's going to change at all. I think they're, uh, you know, you're the same, uh, you know, place with Chase McGrath and uh, and uh, uh, and Buderitz, uh, I think are are both uh, are pretty acceptable. I think they're pretty, uh, you know, pretty solid, and I think USC feels pretty good about about those guys. You uh, talked about some of the wide receivers there, and that kind of leads us into our next question, Dan. Uh, we'll do a couple more and let you go. Uh, Jimmy, he's in East L.A. One of the issues I've noticed with the wide receivers in recent years is the lack of ability to create separation while route running. 
with so many relatively new faces this year, do you feel this group will be capable of creating at least some separation on their routes? Uh, and he said also, if you had to, so yeah, so what, what do you think about the separation? Well, I think Tyler Vaughn's is a natural guy to create separation. We see it every day in practice. He just has a knack, uh, much like, uh, you know, Deontay had. Now, I think some people mean separation is you just run by everybody and you leave them. And uh, USC doesn't do that very much. So they don't necessarily, uh, you know, that's not their game all that much. I think it'll be more their game. Uh, uh, they'll run more play action and they'll try to run people deep. I think they're certainly trying to do that with Vilas um, and um, maybe, you know, uh, get vertical uh, more than, than they have in the past. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, that's, a, I mean, that's a good question in terms of, of, of getting separation. I think a big part of getting separation is, uh, is the patterns that you're running. And what you're trying to do, where, where are you trying, what kind of combinations are you running and, and, and all of that. And I don't know that they were running stuff that was necessarily guaranteed to get separation. Uh, but, but I think, I think Tyler is a natural guy who gets separation. I think they like, you know, Michael Pittman because he can catch the ball in a crowd and you need a guy that can do that and he can go up over people and, uh, and can muscle them, you know, for the ball. So I think you need, you know, you need some of everything, but, uh, but I think Tyler will get separation almost any place on the field. It's just something he's got this way of, he doesn't give a, give away. He's not plant and go. He's sort of just smoothly runs through his, uh, his cuts. And, and I, I think it would be harder to read if I'm a defender, I would have more trouble reading Tyler as to where he's going to end up because you really don't know. Um, Vilas, I think, looks a lot more confident in everything he's doing, and he doesn't look like he's looking for a place to kind of fall down and all that. He's looking for the, the end zone. And so, um, uh, so I'm, I'm a little more optimistic, except then you've got to come up with the quarterback fact, you know, factor. And if you get separation, can they get the ball to you? And uh, that, was, uh, that was an issue in the spring. So... We uh, we'll see where where you, where you go with that, but uh, you know everybody tells you that's the thing that that J T Daniels does best. He yeah. gets the ball to the guy. He gets the ball to people before they even make their cut. He's already throwing to a place in space where they can get to and the defender can't. Uh, how that works? We'll uh, we'll see if it if, if you can get it that quickly, or if uh, if that's the way they choose to go, but. Uh, but separation, yeah, that's an issue, and it's something I think they're they've got a chance to resolve a little bit in their favor. But uh, you got to get the patterns right. Quarterback's got to be right, and uh, and you know, we haven't necessarily always seen that, uh, especially for the deeper balls. We um, had a second part to the question, Dan, from Jimmy in East LA. He said, "If you had to pick." The best receiver for each of these categories, who would your picks be? So, number one, best at creating separation. I think we probably both agree, Tyler Vaughn's, right? Yep, yep, yep. And then what about best route runner? Who do you think that would be? Um, I mean, it could be Tyler Vaughn's because he's able to get separation. Yeah, I think it would be Tyler. (laughs) I think it would more be Tyler, probably. 
he 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 does it kind of his own fashion. I mean, he's not like uh, you know precision necessarily. He's a very instinctive route runner. I think he really picks up on what the defender is doing, and and uh, is able to play off that. I think he's he's a very natural um, you know route runner uh, that way. I would think. And the last one is uh, best hands. Hmm. I might go I mean, Tyler Vaughn's again. You yeah, could say, I think Tyler has to be the guy, probably. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, yep. just like hands in, like if you just were like doing an experiment, like you could probably get Trayvon Sidney to do all kinds of crazy stuff. But if you're talking about That's true. hands yeah. in a game, like we, maybe Sidney, but we haven't really seen it as much as we've seen him do stuff on the sidelines, which is absolutely crazy. So if yeah. it was like testing well, you could for say like. With, with Trayvon. You could say he's got the best hand. He yeah. makes all these ridiculous one-handed catches. Yeah. <laughs> so if you say who's got the best hand, it's uh, Trevon. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think he can really – he does some eye-popping stuff with yeah. one-hand catches. I mean, it's just spectacular, uh, spectacular stuff. And, and Velas is so improved. And, and, you know, when he tells you about – He's catching tennis balls off jug off the jug's gun. You believe him because he doesn't look a lot at all like he was last year. He looks like he's really serious about uh, about improving his hands. And he caught a lot of you know diving balls and you know balls at the ground and going out of bounds and and and, and things that we've not seen him do. So uh, so his hands are, are are really improved. And Michael Pittman has the you know, strong man's hands, you know, where he catches it in a crowd and he takes it away from people and, and does all that. So that's kind of a different kind of a, you know, a hands thing, but, uh, you got pretty good, pretty good hands. And I think, um, um, Josh Fallow has shown pretty good hands. Uh, he, they're, you know, throwing him the ball a little bit more, uh, you know, as a tight end. I think we've always thought Tyler Petit had the good hands, but I don't know that we've always seen that. And I think, you know, for all these kids, you just think, uh, you know, is this the year that they, uh, they really, uh, you know, concentrate and, and are able to, uh, to, you know, just to catch everything. I mean, with this team and with the quarterback situation, I think it's one of those, if the ball hits your hands, you really need to catch it this year. You know, if they get you the ball, it's got to be caught. And you can't have the ball bouncing off guys' hands. Uh, so I think there will be a big emphasis. I know, you know, T has talked about uh, the expectations if the ball hits your hand, that the expectation is you're going to catch it. And so, so that, you know, we'll see. You'd like to see it be an improvement all the way through the, the receiving uh, core, uh, tight ends and wide receivers and and, and running backs. I mean, I think the big advantage this team's got is all three running backs are really good pass receivers. I mean, really, really good pass receivers, just great hands. So, uh, so that's a plus. That's a big plus. Ronald was still as improved as Ronald was last year. He was still working on it. Whereas, uh, you know, you know, Stephen Carr and Vivai and, uh, and Aka Cedric, they all, have always caught the ball well and uh, no sense of, uh, of not throwing them the ball at any time. All right. We got one last one and we'll let you go, Dan Earl 
in West LA, the famous Earl of West LA. Um, My man Earl. There you go. Yeah. Do I do? I think we talked about it after we had you on after the spring game, right? And then, uh, right. Yeah. Yep. Earl and I ran into a bunch of people and he was getting pictures taken with everybody. It was great. Um, he said, I understand Kenny Bigelow has quote unquote unretired and transferred to West Virginia after the NCAA granted him a sixth year of eligibility. He seems a fine young man who seems to have used his injuries as an opportunity to grow and mature during his time at USC. What is the story behind his retirement and change of heart once the NCAA granted him a sixth year of eligibility? P.S. I tried Trader Joe's corn pudding during the holidays. You're right. It's really good. Earl in West L.A. <laughs> oh, my man. Okay. Uh, we're on the same page there. Uh, I think, you know, we even thought he might unretire the Notre Dame week. Uh, we just, because of injuries, and, and, and we just thought, you know, that it was always a possibility, I think. And I think the more uh, he thought about it and uh, the ability to, you know, graduate transfer and still have a year of eligibility, and he's a kid that, you know, didn't get to play that much in high school because of the unusual situation of that high school program where he, he was and and never quite got a chance to show what he thought he could do. Uh, I think it makes all the sense in the world that he's doing this. So I'm glad he's doing it. Uh, I wish him, you know, well, and and wishing nothing but the best. And uh, and I hope he really uh, just nails it this year and uh, and gets to you know play some more football. But uh, but you know I just you know can't be happier uh, for Kenny and that he unretired. I mean, really, I know we talked a lot about last year Notre Dame week that he might unretire then. And uh, I'm glad he's actually, he's going to unretire now. I think that's great. And, you know, just in general, yeah, we love Kenny. He's a great kid. Uh, you know, just sometimes it's just not working out at, at the program. You know, his high school teammate uh, was no longer there. Uh, you know, really, you know, if you if the writing's on the wall and it doesn't look like you're going to be part of the plans going forward, you, you, it's understandable that you're going to go somewhere else. So I, we don't know exactly what was going on behind the scenes, but – that's a sense I kind of got, Dan. It was just like he probably wasn't going to be part of this. Um, and, you know, he'd go somewhere else and try to get a fresh start. Well, he's also going where his other high school teammate yes. has come back, David Sills, and, you know, one of the top receivers in the country uh, at West Virginia. So that's kind of – he's getting that reunion. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was a – that was a difficult program to come out of, I think, for high school. And, and all of those guys have had to transfer or ha- have had have transferred. And it was a uh, it probably wasn't the best uh, uh, background for college football. And it probably took all of them a couple of years to get over that. And so, you know, kind of put them behind. And then with your with the injuries that Kenny had, that really put him behind. So. Uh, if this is a year where he's, you know, he's healthy and he's had enough experience now and he was sort of a student coach and all that, I think he probably brings some real value to the, the program at West Virginia. And I don't think they have a lot of athletes like Kenny. Uh, if you look at USC's defensive line right now, man, there are a lot of athletes. I mean, big, strong, young, potential, very, you know, with great potential. Uh, whereas Kenny can go to a place now and I think uh, have a chance to, to get on the field, which is what he really wanted to do 
and, and show what he can do. And and that's all you know. We can we can hope for for Kenny. Yeah, and it's uh, it's funny you'd mentioned uh, the, his former high school teammates. You know, David Sills obviously being a former USC commit. Khalil Rogers transferred to North Carolina, but was back at USC's pro day working out. So that was one of the things that was interesting too. So I don't know if he worked out at North Carolina's pro day also, but he was back at USC, at least for the pro day. Yes, he was. And I think those kids all did well at USC formed, you know, really, you know, and and even with, with David Sills, I think everybody's always had a good feeling about him. So uh, you hope it kind of works out for, for all those kids because they kind of, you know, did commit, to USC. And, uh, I think they really, uh, you know, gave it everything they had. And, uh, you know, and, and, and David committed so early, he never got here, but that was, uh, still kind of a neat thing that, that he committed, committed that early. And it's a neat thing that he's changed positions and, uh, and, and is doing what he's doing as a, as a wide receiver. And, uh, it would be, uh, you know, whether Khalil can make it, whether he's ever going to be healthy enough with those shoulders, I don't know. But uh, sometimes kids uh, just have, you know, they mature and they get healthy and they get to the NFL, you know, NFL, get a chance to the NFL and they hang out, you know, they hang around. And maybe the same thing happens with Kenny, that you get past the injuries eventually and you stay healthy and uh, things work out for you. So uh, I think we're pulling for all of them. For sure. All right. Well, that's uh, Dan Weber. We're going to get some time from him on a Sunday. We're going to actually talk to Coach Harvey Hyde on Monday. So we'll have back-to-back shows here on the Peristyle Podcast. Like I said, Dan's pretty busy during the week with the trial. So maybe next weekend we'll get uh, Dan back in again. But, Dan, thanks for uh, taking some time. It was was fun. And uh, looking forward to all of your coverage this upcoming week of the Todd McNair trial against the NCAA. Yep. Uh, as we say, with covering USC football, there is never a dull moment. No. Uh, <laughs> things seem to work out. You know, spring ball ends. You know, here comes the draft. Here comes the trial. It just kind of moves on. Although June 8th, uh, if that's the first day, <laughs> first day for JT Daniels enrollment, and gosh knows when the, uh, <laughs> when the uh, first uh, player run practice is. But, uh, but I'm thinking that'll be a big day too. Uh, for sure. <laughs> I mean, we, we still remember it isn't that long ago. Uh, the first summer practice player run practice when Sam Darnold, uh, who didn't come in in the spring showed up in the summer with, uh, with Ricky town who had come in in the spring. So they had two quarterbacks and you watch Sam work and you thought, uh Oh, Oh man. He's really good. Yeah. I would took one practice. I don't know. I mean, I had, I had seen some, um, uh, you know, San Clemente games on, uh, on television, but I had never seen him in person. So you're standing there and I still remember thinking, Oh, wow. And I guess that was the practice where Sam call called Jordan Palmer up and said something like, um, I'm going to be the starter and he's going to transfer. <laughs> <laughs> or something to that effect. And, uh, and Jordan Palmer said he, he only remembers it because he said, I never heard Sam talk like that before, but it was so obvious. And it was so obvious, yeah. you know, what you had in, in, in Sam Darnold, uh, that first, uh, first summer workout. So, uh, it'd be interesting to see, uh, the JT Daniels, uh, summer workouts. For sure. We'll look forward to that. That'll be in June 
uh, most likely. So uh, stay tuned for all that kind of stuff. And that's Dan Weber. You can see him, all his stuff on uscfootball.com, all the trial stuff uh, sponsored by Platinum Storage. So thanks for them for helping us out during covering this trial because it's a lot of work to get everybody down there. So thanks to Dan. Thank you all for listening to the Peristyle Podcast. Like I said, another show coming tomorrow with Coach Harvey Hyde. We'll recap the draft and a lot more. Stay tuned for that. And thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you the next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices. Every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.